So it's cold outside. It's going to be 60 on Thursday. Can you believe it? It's going to be 60 on Thursday. It's amazing. All right, New Year's resolutions. Um, who likes to make New Year's? Anybody here? Like half of America makes New Year's resolutions. Roughly half of America. Do you know what the number one New Year's resolution for 2017? Number one New Year's resolution, 20, according to Google? Wait. Get in shape, lose weight, that whole thing. You're exactly right. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think this has gone up or down? Like 2016, that was also really important, right? But do you think it's gone up or down in 2017? Down. 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 Somebody said down, strong. So, you know, 13% increase. 13% increase. It's number one, and it's gone up by 13%. So, like, we really... We're ready for change. You know what I'm saying? We're really ready for change. Here's what I've noticed, right? Because when you're talking about new, over 80% of people who make resolutions, they're broken. And you got to ask yourself why. So let's talk, about, let's talk about this issue about getting in shape and maybe why we break that. Here's, here's the thing, everybody. You've been to a, an exercise class. You've been on a sports team. You had a personal trainer before. The issue is, here's how you know you're on the wrong track. Like, if you walk out of that class or, or you know, away from whatever uh, team you're on or something like that, and, and, and you're, oh, man, I just, I love the coach. And you just, like, love the coach all the time, you need to quit that class. Right? You need to quit that. You know why? Because there should be something in you every now and then that you can't stand that person leading the class. You know what I mean? You know why? Because they push you so hard. Because they challenge. Because change only happens when we're challenged. Right? So if you really want to change, like if we really want to change, we want to get in shape, well, then you're going to be challenged. and going to be time. I remember my basketball coach. He was a great basketball coach. Couldn't stand him. You know what I'm saying? Because he just pushed us so hard. Christy used to say to me all the time, he says, how can you be okay with him after the game, after he screams at you like that? Right? Because he wants the best and he pushes all the time. So here's the thing. Uh, change is challenging. We're wired for comfort and comfort corrupts. Change is challenging. We're wired for comfort. Comfort corrupts. Now let's talk about church. I'm beginning the series today. And here's the way most people go to church. They go to church. They want to feel good. They want to walk in and feel okay. They want to walk out and feel better, like they've been sitting in a hot tub. Mm. <laughs> Especially today. I just feel so good. And if you don't like what happens in church, it's like, well, I ain't never coming back to that place. I don't like it. I want to challenge that. Because I think all of us can agree we need some change around this issue that we're addressing for the next five weeks. And the only way we're going to get change is if we're all challenged together and we all get uncomfortable together. So I want to challenge you. You need to walk out of here and not like me sometimes. There should be some Sundays, I hope. I mean, I don't like myself. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys fan back there. Gosh. Shoot. I'm thinking about the Redskins right now. I got well, I'm way off track. <laughs> this should be challenging. This is going to be We're going to do this five weeks. So here... I just want to set the pace, if I can, for a second. We can't cover everything today. Some of you might feel at the end of the day, why didn't you talk? Five weeks, okay? In five weeks, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're talking about stories. We're going to talk about stories of injustice. We're going to talk about stories of hope. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of stories. We're talking about how the Bible has been twisted, why the Bible's been twisted, 
how people have used the Bible at times to justify injustice and racism. We're talking about interracial marriage. We're going we're, we're to talk about white privilege. We're going to talk about racism that is in all of us and why it's in all of us and what, I mean, actually our passage today lasers in on that in a huge way. This is what we're going to do for five weeks. What it's going to take, everybody, it's going to take five weeks. Next week, January 15th, I would encourage you this week to read Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail. It is excellent, and all of us should read it and be in preparation because there's a theme in there that is very, very important. January 22nd, we're going to talk about this. The fight against injustice is like fighting hell. The fight against injustice is like fighting hell. Now, our main passage today is out of the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians tells you that really clear. This is, a, this is a big battle. Here, everybody, ready for this? From my study for the past many, many months, historically, going all the way back in Bible days up till today, when we have seen large-scale change around this issue of racism, it has always been preceded by prayer. So if you're here today and you're like, hey, man, I'm serious about racial reconciliation, well, then you've got to be serious about prayer. Like, there's no choice. You have to be serious. Acts chapter 2, massive prayer meeting. All of a sudden, people who hated each other, couldn't stand each other, violently opposed to each other, after a massive prayer meeting, all of a sudden, inside the church, they get along and loving each other. What's up with that? England, 1700s, massive prayer meetings before race-based slavery was voted down. Before the Civil War, 1860s, New York City, Manhattan. New York City, everybody, Manhattan. A reporter went around to all the churches on a weekday during lunch, and they calculated over 10,000 people in the churches, business people, men and women in the churches, praying, calling out, crying out to God, saying, you've got to help us. You've got to help us. Civil rights movement, same thing, immersed in prayer. What I'm saying to you, if we're serious about this issue, about racial reconciliation, then we've got to be, historically speaking, serious about prayer. So on January 23rd, we're going to have a prayer vigil. Monday night, January 23rd, please make your set, right, calendar, your phone, whatever, however, whatever runs your life. We need to come together and pray if we're serious about this, and we are very serious about this. One of the things I've done over and over and over again preparing for this is I've wanted to go through history because there's so much, there's so much talk. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's good. Okay, it's good. But at some point, you've got to say, okay, wait a minute. My head's exploding. Is there a clear line about what does work and what doesn't work? And some things have come to the top, and that's what we are going to talk about today, what works. Finally, um, in your bulletins, you have this. This is actually going to be important. Could you locate your bulletin and locate this sheet? We need some hosts. One of the things that's absolutely critical, everybody, in this, you know, Jesus invites us to his banqueting table. Jesus invites us to a feast. Jesus invites us to a meal. He invites people who are incredibly different from each other, who are really diverse, who have different viewpoints. And at Jesus' meal, he has the people who are actually violently opposed to each other. He says, come around and have a meal. So one of the things critical to this is that we come around and we eat around a table, right, a meal, and we get to know each other. And so we're looking for hosts because in the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to put these things together. But right now, today, we need somebody, somebody's to fill this you know, I'll host it at my house, and all the information's here. Please fill it out. You can drop it in the offering box on the way out, or you can see Pastor Parker at the table in the lobby. He'll answer every question that you have on earth. We need this. Um, I've been in a lot of conversations leading up today, everybody, and actually two weeks ago I got cold feet, and I said, you know what, I think we should call off this tables for eight thing because it scared me. And here I'll tell you why it scared me. 
there's a lot of emotion around this issue. You know what I'm saying? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm like, there's a lot of emotion. Like, all of a sudden, I'm talking to somebody, everything's calm. Next thing I know, they're all up in my face, and they're just, ha, ah. I'm like, whoa, we need to call this thing off. And uh, Mark Anderson over here gave me this piece out of the, out of the post. I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't get the, I don't read print media anymore because I'm young, and I get all of <laughs> Okay, all right. Anyway, so Mark, who's older than me, uh, gave me this piece, and I read it, and it really convicted me. It was about Westchester University, and they did a DNA test of all their students, and they realized there was all this stuff in common. I'm not going to get into that. I want to get into something that happened after the test, and it really convicted me about this, and I said, you know what? We're going to give this a shot. Let's just listen very closely what it says in the Washington Post, December 30th. James Deaver, who voted for Trump, said people talk about politics in this class in ways they don't elsewhere on campus. One student told the class about how she started to tell a group of her friends that she's a Republican and they walked away furious with her, but the class listened. People talked about being scared of deportations. The class listened. A black student described how she was saddened by test results that evoked some of the horrors of slavery, and the class listened. Everybody, if they can do it in a university classroom, here's my question. Do we not have enough spiritual horsepower with inside of this church to produce the fruit of the Spirit? which is love, joy, peace, patience. Do we not have enough of that here in this church that somehow we can survive conversations really diverse and still come together? I think we can. My hope is in you. My hope is that the Spirit is working in you enough that we can pull this off because if they can do it in a university classroom, why can't we do it right here? Because we need to do it. And this is a fundamental step to us getting together. Okay? All right, now this seriously is the last thing I'm going to say, all right? You see we have crosses, one, two, three, four crosses. At the foot of them, there is a, there, there is a container. We're going to have communion today, and uh, communion's open. You don't have to take it, but if you'd like to take it, you can. I'll explain that at the end of the service. But near the crosses, we have these cloths, and we have little clipboards on it, and you can write with a marker on it. And here's why this is really important today. We are going to make something beautiful and new out of these fabrics that it's made up of all the diversity of this room. And, and, and what we would ask you to consider putting on, you're going to hear a story today, and it might, it might cause some bitterness to come up inside of you. And you know what? We need the help of God Almighty to help heal the hurts that have happened to us because of injustice. And so I would encourage you, write whatever you want. You just put one word. God knows what it is. You don't have to write a bunch of stuff. This is all anonymous between you and God. Whatever that word is, whatever the thing, you can write an X mark, whatever you want to put. You put it here, and you put it at the foot of one of these crosses as we take communion today. You also, you know, maybe, maybe you've actually been a person who's caused pain. You've been a person who actually has acted in an unjust way. And, and you need to write that on here too because we're all coming to the table together. We're all coming to the foot of the cross today. And finally, here's, here's what we're after today. Clear. We're after the mission of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? We're going to clarify that, clarify that, clarify that, that. And today you might say, you know what? I never understood what the mission of Jesus was. And now today I understand what the mission of Jesus Christ is. Sign me up. 
And so if you want to accept the mission of Jesus Christ, maybe you'll sign your name. And if it's the first time, maybe you're saying, oh, yeah, I knew what it was, but it got convoluted over the years. I want to I re-up. I want to rededicate. But maybe you'll say, you know, I never heard that way before. Hashtag number one. It's the first time for me. It's the first time I ever stood, understood that. And just put your initials or whatever you want to put, your name, whatever you want to put. Put it on this cloth, okay? We'll make something new out of it. Put it at the foot of the cross because it's the cross that brings us all together. I love what Billy Graham said many years ago. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. He took a hold of the Father in one hand, and he took a hold of us in his other hand, and he brought us all together. The cross brings us together. Now, we have a very important reading this morning in their James Madison outfit over here, which they're very proud about this morning. I'll go ahead and say it for you. Don't clap. Don't clap. We're not proud of James Madison. Please listen closely. Whatever you think, whatever you think the mission of Jesus Christ is, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. Whatever you think it is, it needs to match what's about to be read. Thank you. National champions, by the way. <laughs> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings of your, our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and it is in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he has put to death their hostility. And I'll be reading from Second Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This morning I have the honor to share the stage with two very special people in my life. My mom, Evelyn and her dear friend, Hattie. To my kids, they are referred to as Grammy and Aunt Hattie. As we prepared for this morning, they decided that I would do the talking and they would enjoy their seats of honor. And I know I can count on both of them to chime in if I leave anything out. At 97 years old, Hattie still works and is as sharp as a tack. In fact, yes. In fact, you might spot Hattie behind the wheel of her beige Buick as she and mom make their weekly grocery store rounds or Talbots in Old Town. I know you're not surprised. I am surprised, though, that Talbots hasn't given you guys a VIP parking space someday. Their friendship is more than fun and shopping. Over the years, these two have celebrated 
birthday milestones, grandbabies, and graduations. They've also supported each other over deep sorrows. I recently sat down and talked to Hattie and my mom about their 25-year friendship. It's not just length or closeness of their relationship that inspires me. Hattie and my mom grew up in a very different era, especially when it comes to race relations. Hattie is from South Carolina. She was born in 1919, just over 50 years after the Emancipation Proclamation was ratified and World War I had ended. My mom grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, as she refers to Norfolk. In 1935, she was raised in a radically progressive home by that era's standards. She remembers her mother's black friend, Aunt Carrie, coming to their home every week for prayer. Mom distinctly recalls the two of them side by side on their knees, crying out to the Lord. Hattie's world was different. Though the message of my mother's home challenged segregation, this was not how much society felt as a whole because Hattie's world was structured by one word, separation. For a white child, segregation was such an implicit part of society that it was hardly noticed. But much like racial experiences can be today, discrimination based on skin encroached harshly into every part of Hattie's life. Hattie, you described shopping trips in Florence, South Carolina, her hometown, and she saw signs like whites only or colored served as constant reminders about her position in society everywhere from water fountains to restaurants. The sidewalks were also not neutral ground. When a white person approached on the sidewalk, Hattie remembers being scooted off into the street. It was more than just signs and social standards that made life hard. Hattie also talked about mockery and rudeness, which left a hurtful effect upon her. By age seven, Hattie moved to Ithaca, New York. It was an improvement, but she was still treated rudely by kids, and they still called her mean names. And she recalls fighting to be a regular part of her school day. Hattie could not participate in games like golf or tennis either. To my surprise, Hattie was the only black girl in her middle school class. When Hattie graduated high school, she had limited job options as a woman of color. Things changed, though, with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Then everyone wanted Hattie, restaurants, stores, and banks. Dr. King's life and then his death was influential in changing the whole trajectory of her life. Hattie told me how hard it was to get her very first professional job as a bank teller. She recalls jumping through hoops, backwards, forwards, and upside down. When finally Hattie got her position, she recalls children pressing their faces against the bank window to catch a glimpse of the black lady bank teller. Hattie, thank you for helping me understand what your life was like. I know we just very skimmed the surface, 
but it helps to start the conversation. Hattie, you explained that you felt angry towards white people as a group. When you and mom met working at the Jefferson 25 years ago, I can imagine that you may not have seen a deep friendship in your future. But things have changed over the years for these two and for our society. What did it take to transition from pleasant colleagues to best friends? Hattie tells me about a day that she was terribly ill. So ill, in fact, that she couldn't even get herself to the doctor. My mom called her from work to check on her. Hattie sounded terrible. My mom couldn't leave work, so she sent my father to check on Hattie. Big Russ drove her to the doctor and stayed with her the whole time. Hattie had pneumonia, a serious illness for someone in her 70s, even someone as spunky as an Aunt Hattie. For Hattie, the simple, that simple act of friendship and kindness shifted the dynamic of their friendship. Since that day, they have been friends through it all. My mom was there for Hattie when she lost her son and then her husband. Hattie has stood by my mom, too, as she has learned to cope with my father's Alzheimer's. These days, my mom finds herself struggling with challenges of aging. But yesterday morning, I drove up to my mom and dad's house, and just as I arrived, Hattie is pulling away in her familiar car. Despite the cold, the snow, and Hattie being 97 years old, she had already come for a visit. She had bundled up and been to two grocery stores before 10.30 a.m. <laughs> but this is nothing unusual. Hattie came that morning with an arm full of food for mom and dad, as she often does. My mom relies on Hattie more and more, and I am constantly amazed at Hattie's energy and the love that she has for my mom. So what is their secret? I love what you told me, Hattie. You said, we don't gossip about anyone. We just enjoy each other. We eat together. We shop together. We like nice clothes. And we just like the same things. Sometimes mom tells her how to drive, too. <laughs> Good one, Hattie. She does me too. <laughs> and John. Okay, so. <laughs> well, these two came from uh, an age when time, when barriers conspired to keep them apart. Readjusting ingrained views takes time, healing also takes time. What I see from Hattie and my mom is that walls built up over generations can start to crumble through conversation and simple acts of kindness. Thank you both for being with us today. We are so inspired by your stories. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was great. Um, one word, separation. You heard what, um, what Krista just read and what uh, just really was the one word that uh, Hattie remembers was separation, and we think about these, you know, these signs that um, not too long ago were all over the place, and 
when you think about Ephesians chapter 2, everybody, Ephesians chapter 2 was very much like these signs. Same thing was going on in Ephesians chapter 2. You had a group of people, as was just read, Jesus Christ took down the dividing wall of hostility. You had a group of people who wouldn't eat together, they wouldn't drink together, they wouldn't worship together. That's what was happening 2,000 years ago. And then Jesus Christ came along, and you had a group of people who could not get along outside the church, who all of a sudden could get along inside the church. And here's my thing. This is what I'm all about today, to start this series. I'm going to talk about all kinds of stuff during this series. But I, want, I think we need to get really clear historically now, both biblical history and just world history around this issue. Jesus Christ, the mission of Jesus Christ is historically what has worked over and over and over again at bringing down the dividing wall of hostility. And this is what we are in the next 10 minutes going to focus on. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus has reconciled us vertical first so that we can have a ministry of reconciliation. So I hope all of us can be really clear at the end of this service today. If you all right, what exactly is church? What exactly is the mission of Jesus Christ? Reconciliation. Reconciliation is what it is all about. So here we go. This is how it begins. It says um, in Ephesians 2, it says we're all dead. Now that's not something you want to hear every day, right? But you, you're dead. Like we're all living out our own weekend at Bernie's, right? I've never seen Weekend at Bernie's, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out what the movie's about, right? Two guys, they want to have a party, I think, and uh, their boss is an integral part to it. He dies. So instead of canceling the party, which they didn't want to do, they just dragged around their dead boss all weekend, and it's called Weekend at Bernie's. There you go. You don't need to see the movie now, okay? We're dead, right? We're dead. What's dead? What exactly is dead? What died? Our relationship with God died. Why, why did our relationship with God... There's where life comes from. Life comes from through reconciliation. Why did it die? Sin. Now, there's another word that you don't like to hear a whole lot, right? Sin. Who wants to be called a sinner? Who wants to be told that they have sin in their life? And here's my hope. By the time we get done to the end of this series, I hope that you say, John, would you please tell us more about sin? We want you to talk more about Sin. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that you might say it at the end of this series? I hope you do. And I hope that maybe you'll start to understand why in the next 10 minutes of why sin is so important. It says in Ephesians 2, we all have a sin nature. It's a word, sarks, S-A-R-X. Simply means this. That inside of us, big, small, doesn't matter. There is at least a piece or a sliver or a large amount, whatever you want, right? That is self-centered. That there's a piece of us that serves ourselves, right? Martin Luther gave this definition of the word sarks. He says this, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gifts of God's toward itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, it also fails to realize that we are so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Now, that's a lot of words. What does it mean? It just means we're self-centered. Philosophers talk, talk about this. Nietzsche talks about this. He said there's no thing, 
thing as pure altruism, that nobody is a pure altruist, that even when we serve other people and do something good, we're doing it for some piece of a selfish motive, something that we get out of it. So philosophers will say there's no such thing as pure altruism, and that's what Sarks is. That's what incurvitus inse, this word that Luther talks about, that's what the sin nature actually means. And here's what it is. There's a verse in the book of Romans that says it so. It says nobody seeks God. I've read that all my life, and I thought, wait a minute, I know a lot of people who are seeking God. I want you to think about it. People seek what they can get from God. So are you excited about praying when none of your prayers get answered? Are you seeking God or are you seeking what you can get from God? I've talked to so many people throughout the years that, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. I said, oh, no, why? Why don't you believe in God anymore? Because I asked for something that's really important to me. I didn't get it, so I don't believe in God anymore. Okay, well, there's sarks, right? And we're all the same. I, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm tired of praying too. Nothing's happened for me. Well, that's sarks. I'm using God to serve me. And in and, and religion, like you think about, oh, yeah, I know self-centered people. Self-centered people are the people who do all these terrible things. It's so clear to see them. You, you know where a great place for people who to exhibit their own sarks is? Religion. Because whatever, whatever, whatever better place to feel good about yourself than to be a good person and a good citizen and a, a good parent or, or a good churchgoer or whatever, right? So you find people who really, right? And so, so Jesus had the hardest amount of time with people who were the best people. So all of us are struggling with, so, so we need something to dig down into us that eliminate, because Sarks will always raise its head, and when it does, it wants to feel superior to other people. So as far as a church goes, you know, the church, when you, when you say, well, what's the Christian church about? Number one thing, and I will answer, bing, 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 judgment. Well, there's a group of people who don't, under, don't understand the true mission of Jesus Christ that digs down into our hearts because then you can't have that. Am I making sense? You can't because it digs down into your heart and it removes it. So you've got to have this. So here's what religion does. Religion, just about every religion that I've ever studied, says the same thing. You do X, Y, Z, and you get right with God. Do X, Y, and Z. Why is that a problem? Here's why it's a problem, everybody. Because I do X, Y, and Z. And that appeals to what? Sarks. It appeals to that, yeah, I did it. Now, I did it. You didn't did it. You didn't do it. And so, like, what's wrong with you? You better get your act together. So what is it actually that's going to dig down into our hearts and deal with our sarks? And it's Jesus Christ. Because here in Ephesians, it says that Jesus Christ comes along and says, there's no good works. There's nothing. There's nothing, there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to do. He's, he's done it all. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. There's not a list for you to keep. He kept the list. You're, it's impossible for you to ever keep the list. There's nothing for you to feel proud about. There's nothing for you to feel like, oh, I but there's nothing. It goes so deep down into our heart of sarks. It just disrupts it. It like shatters what's going on inside. And it just levels. And all of a sudden, there's this deep, profound gratitude and humility. And you might say, well, John, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I mean, one thing I did do is I put my faith. When we t I, I talk about it all the time. How do you become a Christian? Well, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But actually, Ephesians doesn't say that. It actually says that none of us have faith in Jesus Christ. It says that even your faith in Christ is held out to you as a gift. You can't even offer that. None of us have faith in Jesus Christ. We're just responding to the faith that he gives us. And the reason why a lot of people, I think, don't respond is because we don't understand what's being presented to us. We're confused about the gift. We just had Christmas. Some of you were presented a gift, and you looked at it and said... I don't want this thing. <laughs> Man, why did you buy me this diet book? You know, it's, you know what I'm saying? 
Why did you buy me this book about how to be a you know, better person or stop being obnoxious? Why? I don't need this. So, or whatever. Okay, so we're confused about it. All I'm trying to do is clear up the confusion today. The mission of Jesus Christ is a reconciliation mission. I think we're in pretty broad agreement that we need reconciliation, and here's what works. We've got to find something that gets down into us and deals with the sarks that is in all of us, and that is what Jesus Christ does. Now, Ben Watson, who wrote a book called um, Under Our Skin, he's a tight end for the Baltimore Ravens, just very deep thinker, excellent. He says in this book, he said, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. That's the same thing the Bible says. Same thing. Look, we, we need to have better laws that prevent injustice and racism and all that. We, we do. We need, we need better laws, okay? We need to put better systems in place so that people can't treat people with injustice. We need to have more training. Yes to all of it. But our sarks is so powerful that it will find a way. Do you know what I'm talking about? It'll find a loophole in every law system and training and figure out a way to suppress other people. And so Jesus Christ comes along and says, you know what? I will help you with that. I'll bring true reconciliation. I'll get down into that sarks of you, right? And I'll change your heart. I won't change your behavior. I'll change your heart. And historically, everybody, if you go through history, you will find over and over and over again how Jesus Christ and his mission, when it is clear, when it's not clear, it's a problem. Let's just be clear about that. But when it is clear, it has always brought down racial barriers, dividing walls of hostility. Historically, it has happened over and over and over. 2,000 years ago, it happened. 300 years ago, it happened. 200 years ago, it happened. 50 years ago, it happened. It happened over and over and over again. Predominantly, Predominantly, the people who are behind the driving wheel of racial reconciliation throughout history, the vast majority are a people who are on a mission for Jesus Christ. And we need to take a look at what really works if we're going to deal seriously with racial reconciliation. We're going to talk a lot about history throughout this series. I just want to give you one glimpse. We're going to talk about it more in two weeks. But one, 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 one little picture, okay? England. 18th century England. The Enlightenment happened during that same time frame, right? You all familiar? Enlightenment? Yes, go ahead. Nod, even if you don't know, nod your head. Makes me feel good. Makes me feel, makes, makes me feel good. Okay? The Enlightenment. Enlightenment, uh, secular humanism grew out of the Enlightenment. Today, Christianity is spreading very rapidly in Africa, China, uh, South America, very, very rapidly. But in America and Western Europe, secular humanism is kind of like, yeah, you know. Um, Secular humanism was perfectly poised in the 18th century to speak against slavery. Perfectly poised to be there to say no. And you know what actually it did? Now, I'm not bashing enlightenment or secular humanism because actually Christianity shares some very strong uh, similarities too, right? The commitment to reason that we use our brains to glorify God. That is a clear commitment of Christianity. The commitment to justice and morality and freedom. We share those similarities. But the idea within secular humanism and the enlightenment, which you grew out of, right, is that we look inside of ourselves. Right? My daughter was telling me the other day, well, amongst teenagers today, that the phrase is this, you do you. <laughs> yeah, you do you. Now, why does you do you not work? Huh? 
you look inside of yourself, what are you going to see? You're going to see whatever you see. Ready, everybody? So that was the mantra of the Enlightenment Secular Union. You look inside of yourself. Here's why it's a problem. Because the Enlightenment actually spoke on behalf of slavery. They upheld slavery. And what frustrated the Enlightenment leaders, the leading voices of the Enlightenment, the secular humanists, okay? Right? What frustrated them so much was this. They were sick and tired of Christian fanatics who kept speaking out over and over for decades and they kept calling slavery what? A sin. And this is why I want you to love the word sin right now. Because calling it a sin, that racism is a sin, is what brought it down. And it was Christians on a mission from Jesus Christ. History is not convoluted about this issue. Do you realize that? So we're talking about racial reconciliation. Where in the past has it repeatedly come down on a large scale way? It has been people on a mission for Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Now, I want to conclude by saying something about this. How does reconciliation work? I'm going to show you a picture. Who is that guy? That is the great Jackie Robinson. Tremendous athlete. Tremendous athlete. Uh, baseball, basketball, um, football, track, tennis. He played every sport. He was in the Army. He was a champion ping pong player. Check that out. So we're talking about an incredible athlete. His older brother, Mac, won a silver medal in the 1936 Olympics. Who won the gold? Jesse Owens. You're exactly right. Jesse Owens. All right, let me show you another picture. Who are these two guys? Is there any baseball fans in the house? That's right. General manager of the Dodgers, Branch Rickey, Jackie Robinson. Now, I want to ask you this. All right, we know that Jackie broke uh, the color barrier. Uh, we all understand, you definitely understand this if you're a baseball fan. One of the most important civil rights stories in the history of the United States of America. To this day, everybody, the Major League Baseball has only retired one number in all of its history. What number is it? 42. For who? In April, every single Major League player wears the number 42 in honor of who? Jackie Robinson. This isn't a small story. This is a huge story. And do you know what caused this to happen? You know what was at the center of it? Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson both were Christians. And they believed their Christian faith said it's time to break the color barrier. So when Jackie Robinson finally meets for the first time Branch Rickey at Dodgers headquarters in Brooklyn, and he rides up on a whites-only elevator because the scout he was with bribes the guy running the elevator to let him ride up on it. And he sits down in an office and meets Branch Rickey for the first time. They sit down and they just stare at each other in silence. Robinson has no idea why he's there. And Branch Rickey pulls out a book. Now, you can watch the movie 42. It's okay. But you know how the difference is between a book and a movie? All right. Okay. He pulls out a book. The book is called Life of Christ. He turns to the section about the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to talk with Jackie about their mutual commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, the movie says this part. The movie gets it right. After he has already told Jackie how difficult and painful this is going to be for him to bridge that gap, to bring the record, to break the color barrier. He says to Jackie Robinson, he says, are you willing to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, 
what is widely accepted by people is pretty much this. They say, you know what? I don't like that Jackie Robinson had to go through it, but that's the way reconciliation had to happen. That's the way the color barrier had to be. I don't like the fact that he had to endure all the hate mail. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill your kid. He had to endure all the yelling and screaming and ballparks all day. Okay, okay. We don't like any of that. But what is widely accepted by everybody is that's the way it had to happen. Had to happen. He had to be willing to go through suffering. And did you know that a meeting happened on August the 28th, 1945, when Branch Rickey, who became like a father figure to Jackie Robinson, sat him down and said, are you willing to do this? Did you realize there was a meeting many, many, many years ago in heaven when the father sat down his son and he said, are you willing to break the cosmic barrier? Are you willing to do this? Everybody, the mission of Jesus Christ is about reconciliation, and it has been the mission of Jesus Christ that repeatedly has brought down the wall of racism. And if we're serious about it, then we need to be serious about the mission of Christ. Have you received the gift of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and allowed him to give you the ministry of reconciliation because historically that is what works. Now for some of us, you're thinking right now and what's speaking is Sarks is saying, you know what, if I do that, my friends or my family or my coworkers say, well, you believe in Jesus? Well, now at least you can tell them, yeah, I do believe in Jesus because Jesus over and over and over and over and over again has brought down injustice. There's the history. You could say that. You say, oh, man, you believe in Jesus? Isn't that a problem with science? Isn't that a problem with something else? That's your sark speaking that always wants to be comfortable. We're not going to change if we're comfortable. We have to be willing to step across the line, to be willing to suffer. Thank goodness Jackie Robinson was, and thank goodness Jesus Christ was. So today, I'm going to ask you, with these cloths that are at the foot of the cross, for some of us, again, everybody, you have a pain in your heart. I have read so many stories now, right from this congregation, of people who have been treated so badly. Just like Hattie said, over the years, that stuff builds up. You need to write something on this, put it at the foot of the cross, and ask God to bring healing by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring healing. For some of us in this room, we've actually furthered the cause of injustice, and we need to do that too. But my main point today, everybody, in case I've been unclear, is the mission of Jesus Christ has what's brought down racism in this world. And what I want to encourage you is with this. Have you ever accepted the gift of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and taken up the ministry of reconciliation? Write your name, write your initials, whatever. Join the Jesus train because it needs to pull out of the station because we definitely need a change in this world. Put your, it's anonymous, put whatever you want on this and put it at the foot of the cross. I'm going to ask if those serving communion would come and uh, help me out. I'm going to explain communion. And the music team's going to come out, and um, we're going to sing a song. 
So here's how communion goes around here, everybody. So if, if case, case you're new. Now, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to, we're going to get up and we're going to go to five different locations. Ushers will direct you to whatever location that, that might be. They'll come down the rows. And there'll be a, a location here and here. And then in the back, one, two, three. Communion's open to everybody here. It is very serious. The Bible says we should examine our hearts. But it's really clear. This is between you and God. This is between you and God. We're not judging that. This is between you and clearly between you and God. But it is, it is a very serious thing. And if you, maybe, maybe you've been to a place, maybe you've been to a church before, and you're like, oh, man, you know, if I don't take it, you know, everybody's going to look at me. You're in the wrong church. Nobody's, that doesn't happen here. Nobody looking at you saying, why didn't they take communion? That's, you're in the wrong place, all right? Almost 40% of this congregation self-classifies as a non-churchgoer. Almost 40%. You're in the right place. Don't worry about that, Okay? So you'll get up, you'll come to the location, like right here. You'll take the bread, you'll take the cup, you'll eat, you'll drink, and there's a wastebasket on either side. When you're done with communion, our crosses are in the four different locations. Put it there, at the foot of the cross, whatever it is that needs to go on those pieces of cloth. And let's see what Jesus Christ will do with whatever is going on in your hearts. Our prayer team is on both walls today. We're going to sing. We're going to have communion. Our prayer team is, if you want somebody to pray with you. And that's, we need prayer. Remember, prayer precedes everything in this fight against injustice. Then we're going to pray. All right. Let me pray for communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your mission, Jesus, that has historically over and over and over again brought down the walls of separation and injustice. God, the roadmap is so clear. Help us, God, open our eyes to it today because, Lord, we need to see change. Lord, I ask that you would bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup, your suffering, your sacrifice, the blood that you shed on that cross to bring reconciliation between us and you. Move in this place today, Father, in a powerful way. In your holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.